Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, hello and welcome to Season 7, Episode 3 of Cross Section. Today I am joined by Danny Webster, our regular, and Nicola, both coming in from London today. Yes, we're separate rooms, a few metres apart. Awesome. Well, lovely to have you both. We're going to cover some uh, variety of stories as usual. I like to start with the rugby. It reminds me of Joe Evans, formerly of this parish. We used to do the fantasy rugby together. And I mainly talk about rugby when Ireland have won, which they did at the weekend. England also victorious. Scotland pipping wheels. Sorry to our Welsh followers, but what a game of rugby. But because none of you are interested in rugby, that's not our top story. I, I did have to just Google how England had done because that totally passed me by. Danny, Danny, we're trying to kind of get people to listen to us and warm to us, not not put them off by not having an interest. <laughs> so probably the biggest news story of the week, well, there's a number, but one that's got probably a lot of the front page coverage is King Charles and um, his cancer diagnosis. Um, and then obviously the family movements around that. We don't actually know a great deal about this, but Nicola, maybe do you want to say more about what interested you on this story? I think just the realness that it gives us of the royal family. Uh, cancer is a thing that affects so many different lives and families. And to see the king himself have cancer and how um, the family's navigating that, Harry's came over to visit quickly, um, just gives us slightly more realness to the royal family of they're going through something that many families have to deal with. And it's a really difficult thing to deal with. Yes, I mean, Fergie not that long ago with a breast cancer diagnosis, I think, in her case. But also, so yeah, and you've commented on Harry coming in. Danny, we've certainly seen interesting coverage again of the difficult relationships in the royal family. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges with covering and even us talking about the news is that there's not that much to talk about. So the risk is the coverage, because it's a big story, because it's the king and there is a feeling like there needs to be a lot of attention given to it all of the kind of side stories start getting talked about and that's where harry flying in having a half hour with his dad not talking to his brother that drama becomes something for all the news outlets to talk about because they've not got much else to talk about because he has been diagnosed with cancer he is receiving some treatment Beyond that, we don't know very much. So there is sometimes a, a sense of trying to spin out a story and find other angles to make it interesting, to make there something to talk about. And Prince Harry provides plenty of that drama. He does. It's, I mean, it is noteworthy coming into the country and not speaking to your brother. Obviously, relationships are pretty bad. Uh, at this moment, uh, and obviously Kate herself, Princess Kate, uh, Catherine is just out of hospital. So William stepping up and taking on a lot of responsibilities as long with the Princess Royal. And like many leaders, our prayers are with the King in this moment. As Nicholas said, though, with many people, cancer is something that's really live and real and, and probably for some of our listeners. So we do pray healing and wholeness on the King. We sing God save the Queen, God save the King. Sorry, there you go. There's my Freudian <laughs> slip again. But that's the it is it is in essence a prayer for the king uh, that song and so uh, now we declare it as a prayer uh, over our king and over all those who are uh, experiencing and suffering from cancer in this moment and um, the hope is that it's caught early in this case and that the, the treatment is ongoing um, but this is a reality for many people okay so we are off and running uh, as you say Danny not much else we can say on that story 
Another story that has really caught the headlines and particularly interesting then to us living as we do at the intersection of faith and culture is Abdul Izidi, the asylum seeker who has faced claims of I suppose, faking his conversion to Christianity. And it's opened a wider story around asylum seekers. Danny, you've written about this. Maybe you want to introduce this specific story and then the kind of wider issues that are coming into play. Well, Abdul Azidi last week is suspected of carrying out a horrific acid attack in Clapham in London. Uh, he is on the run. Uh, police have been making raids and they're still hunting him. But the, the part that's interesting is that he received asylum at the third attempt on the basis of his conversion to Christianity and the risk of persecution were he to be returned to Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is a country that's 10th on the Open Doors World Watch List. It is a country where Christians are persecuted, where it is dangerous to be a Christian. And it is important that our asylum system protects people and provides refuge for people fleeing persecution in those situations. The, the controversy in this situation is whether or not he had faked it. People have apparently said that he had talked about still going to Islamic prayers, that he was looking forward to going back and seeing his family in Afghanistan, suggestions that he, his conversion wasn't genuine. There's been a bit of confusion as to what church he was part of. He was involved in a project run by a Catholic church, but there was also talk of a Baptist church that had been involved with him. So we don't really know exactly what had happened. But then the thing that's got really interesting is a number of conservative, mostly former ministers, writing and commenting, accusing the church of facilitating abuse of the asylum sister. Most notably, Swala Barberman wrote in the Daily Telegraph at the weekend, Take the church as an example. While at the Home Office, I became aware of churches around the country facilitating industrial-scale bogus asylum claims. And that's the charge that has got everyone talking this week. And Danny, come back to you for one second, and then I'm going to Nicola, because, I mean, is there any evidence that there is industrial-scale? Because this is the phrase that gets rolled out, but it didn't seem to me in reading around it that there was much evidence. It seemed to be very anecdotal. No, and I think people have asked this question, like, where is the evidence of industrial scale abuse? Um, I think there is a need for churches to use discretion and wisdom. Um, but actually, the, the testimony of church leaders is something that the Evangelical Alliance lobbied for. In 2007, we wrote a report that said that the way that immigration officials were seeking to as someone's Christianity, and this is often people who have come into the UK as Christians, they asked some stupid questions. How do you cook a turkey? What colour is your Bible? What was the name of the thieves who were crucified next to Jesus? And if you don't know, that's right, because you shouldn't know. No one knows their names. But immigration officials were asking stupid questions. And one of the recommendations we made, and then other groups have made in the years since, was that the testimony of local church leaders should be listened to to help to ascertain whether someone was a Christian or not. Now, there is obviously scope for the hospitality and the welcome of churches to be abused and churches need to use discretion but there's no evidence of industrial scale collusion with the asylum system no danny you've written an article if people look up evangelical focus they can find it because you wrote about the turkey claim that greatly amused me that this was a, a question asked how do you cook a turkey and then the name of the thieves for which i was stumped for a second and then you reminded me that i shouldn't know and couldn't know <laughs> nicola we've been working in this area and, and talking about it from a policy perspective as danny says too i mean it, it is a contentious area that's really i i guess catching the 
the press and putting the church in the crosshairs in this moment? Yeah, it is. And I think the thing that I find uh, most almost offensive about the article that Suella Braverman's written is the tone of it. There's no acknowledgement there of what the church has done for asylum seekers, that yes, the, this case is awful, but um, it's a rare case. Um, it, the, this man maybe should not have been granted asylum in the UK based on past actions, but it is rare. And there's so many people seeking asylum in the UK uh, refugees in the UK that are deserving and in need of support and the church is there and it's giving it to them at times when uh, the government policy makers uh, maybe haven't done that job or uh, I mean Braverman herself in the article uh, acknowledged that our system remains broken and uh, you know it's the government's duty to to fix that broken system and it's the church's duty to support people in their immediate needs. And we've seen the church do that. And sometimes that might have been them maybe making unwise or uh, slightly misguided uh, decisions on who to support in applications. But I would say the vast majority of the time, the church has good reason to believe people have became converts or and, and they're just there trying to support them and trying to do what's best for them. Yeah, it's worth saying that Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition, has also talked about closing uh, the loophole for Christian converts. So it does go somewhat across party, mm. but also that this is an ongoing, there's a bit of ongoing back and forward, particularly the Church of England, but the church at large, pushing the government and immigration and saying, you haven't got this right. And it feels to some extent like the government and some of their former ministers have found a moment to kind of hit back at the church a little bit for being too soft. But the reality is it's not the church's job to make these decisions. They are only ever going to support or advocate or be a witness, if you like, on behalf of somebody. And I've certainly spoken to a friend, a minister who was called forward by the Home Office, and he said, talked about the grilling that he received from a Home Office barrister. It was intense. It was rigorous. And as he said, largely rightly so. In fact, the judge eventually, I think, stopped the barrister and said he was being unduly kind of adversarial. But fundamentally, he was like, I'm happy to answer these questions. I am simply here as a witness. My job is primarily as a minister to support this person. And if you, the Home Office, want my evidence, that's fine, I'll give it. But you ultimately have to make the decision. It's your criteria. It's your rules. So I think that's some of the pushback we're making, Danny. Would that be fair to say from a policy perspective, these are the government's rules and, and the government needs to do the enforcing. The church is only ever going to be a party, if you like, a third party to the side. Yes, and I... I don't know what Kistana means by closing the loopholes. That's my next question as well. What is the particular loophole you're seeking to close? That some people are abusing a system may well be true, but that doesn't mean there's a loophole. It means that you need to try and prevent people from abusing that system. I think what's also somewhat challenging in this is the suggestion that churches shouldn't be celebrating when people come to know Jesus and become Christians. Well, of course, we should be sharing the good news with people. We should be providing welcome and hospitality and compassion. And we should be celebrating when people come to know Jesus. That is what the church does. So there's one of the other related stories at the moment is of 40 people on the immigration barge, the Stockholm Bibby, are in baptism classes or have been baptised. Actually, when you read the article, the Baptist minister involved says most of these people came to the UK as Christians. And that, yes, that they are thinking baptism, but these are people who came into the country as Christians. Now, if some other people become Christians, great. Are some people jumping on this as something that they think can help them fast track their way 
into having right to remain, that is quite possible. And I think almost because of the attention it's got, more people may try and do it. And those people who are traffickers and people smugglers may well encourage people to try and use that route. But churches will continue to do what churches do, which is to provide the compassion, provide the welcome, share the good news of Jesus, encourage people to build community. And I think that's what the church is doing. And where people can testify to to what's happening in people's lives, I think they should do that. They should use discretion and they should see the potential for that being abused. But it needs to not be confused with giving excuses for a very dysfunctional immigration and asylum system. Yeah, look, and my wife's just literally come in the door of our house here and she's just been teaching English this morning to uh, people from a variety of countries uh, that have come here and been placed where I am in Northern Ireland. And the reality is they've cut back on travel cars, they've cut back on access to uh, recreation facilities. Obviously, people can't work. So if it weren't for that and the church providing this English language class, most of these people have nothing else they can do and they can't move anywhere, they can't access anywhere. We happen to be in a particularly interesting area where there's very little cultural diversity. And so there's even less places for people to go together or even places of worship. So one of the things the church is doing is making it actually possible for people to have any kind of life here, if you like. And uh, so the government relies on the church to do a lot of that work that it doesn't do. Uh, teaching English, feeding people, helping to integrate them in. And then when one thing goes wrong, as you say, there's a bit of pushback. And the reality is we don't run the immigration system. We lobby and engage around it as the Evangelical Alliance. Um, but that is ultimately for the government to run. And the persecuted piece is a really interesting one. As you've said, people who come here from a, when identifying as Christians as they come in, that is one of the grounds. One of the interesting things that this case seems to have uh, highlighted is if you come and claim, and even if you fail, you now couldn't go back to Afghanistan even if you weren't a Christian, the, the claim to be a Christian and to have tried that line makes it impossible for you to go back. And that's a deeper problem with the system and um, that's going to have to be resolved in this moment. Um, look, this is our big story. It's the one we're looking at. Nicola and Danny, I'll look to you both to see if you want to say anything more before we move to our third and final story. Either of you got a, a, a parting piece of wisdom for us on this one? Danny first then. Well, I think it is interesting in the context of the discussion around the role of faith and politics because it's clearly being linked to criticism of the Church of England, but also other churches criticising the government's uh, Rwanda scheme and immigration plans. It comes off the back of bishops in the House of Lords criticising that bill. And, and I feel like there is a risk of politicians trying to blame church leaders for politicising things when actually it's the politicians that are trying to drag churches into a political mess other than accept that there are different roles and different responsibilities. And I think we're looking at a general election probably in the autumn. I think we're going to be talking more, I'm sure, about the role of faith in politics. And I think we need to not be afraid to speak up into public life, but also recognise the fact that politicians seem increasingly willing to push back against Christians when they do that. Nicola, last word on this one goes to you. Big pressure. I think, similarly to Danny, that the church does have a role to play. It's got a role to play in supporting. It's got a role to play in advocating. But ultimately, it's the government, it's the civil service that makes the final decisions. And they can listen to what the church says and they should give weight to what the church says. But when there's a case of someone who's clearly been a danger to people 
in the past that also needs to take weight and it's the government uh, and decision makers responsibility to give that the weight that it deserves yes it does uh, there were a number of cases in this particular uh, sorry case there were a number of moments when this could have been stopped there were two turned down appeals there were there was a history of offenses there seemed to be an, a number of things that should have triggered some sort of response and it does feel like a, a slightly cheap shot coming afterwards at the church in this moment. So this is what we're always going to do, as we've said, we're going to be a prophetic voice as Christians into the public square. The church isn't going to always agree with government. In fact, quite often isn't. And that's no bad thing that we have these voices able to do that. And we're seeing that in this particular case. So that's our second and big story of the week. You are listening to Cross Section, where we dive into the intersection of what's going on in news and culture in this moment. And then we see how we apply our faith and our Christianity and our love of Jesus into these stories and try and wrestle with them. The third and final story that we have picked this week is the story of Brianna Jai. The biggest conversation we had on the way into this was whether we got the correct pronunciation. We've heard it said to be grey, gay, but Jai, we believe, is the, is the right pronunciation. This is a tragic, tragic story of the death of this young girl. But her mum speaking then around this topic and around particularly the influence of social media and smartphones. So what we want to focus on in this story is the call for the banning of smartphones for young people and those under 16 Nicola, do you want to start us off on this story and uh, maybe more of the background as to how this came about and the influence of social media and, and smartphone in this very horrific case and the call then to have them banned? Sure, yeah. The issue with phones in this case was that it was found that the killers, particularly one of the murderers in this situation, Scarlett Jenkinson, was accessing a really dark footage on uh, the dark web. She was looking up things to do with murder and to do with torture. And this was all plan this all inspired her to make a plan to murder and inspired um, the boy in the case too. And so uh, Brianna Jai's mum has said that she wants smartphones to be banned. She's said she doesn't blame the killer's parents and um, that they can't monitor everything that their children are looking at online. And therefore, there needs to be some policies in place that ban children from accessing smartphones or certain things on smartphones. Now, my perspective, I completely understand that call and I do think there needs to be more things in place monitoring children under 16-year-olds are viewing online, eh, not just around harmful material eh, or, or material about violence, but eh, things to do with self-harm, pornography. These are all massive issues in our society and eh, a lot of the time eh, when they become an issue, it's inspired by things people have seen online. And so I do think there needs to be greater policies in place. Phone companies maybe have a responsibility in that too. But I think the banning of phones for all under 16s um, is too difficult a policy to actually implement. And I think that it would probably lead to a division within classes and schools and more bullying. If I, I just don't know how you monitor how a 16-year-old's accessing a phone. When I was under 16, it was my parents that bought me my phone or bought me any technology that I had. How are they able to monitor who has a phone? Uh, is it a smartphone? What can they access on it? From my perspective, I think the monitoring needs to be on what they can access on the phone rather than the, the phone itself, um, because I think it leads to all sorts of bullying and division if uh, certain people's parents agree to buy them a phone and certain people's parents don't. 
Well, Danny, your your kids are at the younger end of the spectrum for the phone, so you're not quite facing this yet, but interested to hear your take on this because it is this banning phones, banning the content on the phones, and, and everybody wants somebody else to ban it is usually the solution as well rather than actually we as parents have to take some responsibility. So, Danny? I think, well, I, I, I was just reflecting that I got my first phone when I was 18. I had to have my own phone which meant that I had to have my had to be 18 to have the contract, but it definitely wasn't a smartphone when I got that. But I felt slightly behind the times at that point because many of my contemporaries had had phones for a couple of years. Yeah, my children are much younger. Usually they're grabbing my phone, opening up the camera and filling the camera reel with photos, slow-mo captures, or whatever the phone does of our living room floor is what I usually find that they've done with my phone. But it is a, a real challenge. And I think the question then is, what is a useful and realistic approach to restricting access to social media and content online? I think some form of restriction is necessary, but who should be responsible for that? And how should that be done? I think banning mobile phones is, is an overly simplistic approach. Many of the same apps could be got through an iPad or a computer. It's not stopping people accessing things. Yes, mobile phones are generally carried around, so there may be greater risks with that. But I think it also needs to not absolve parents of the responsibility that they have in terms of ensuring that they're knowing what their children are doing. And I know, Pete, you have views, you have children of a relevant age in terms of, of how we navigate this. But my contemporaries who have older children, my sisters are navigating this with their children. Yes, we want children to be engaged with their classmates. We want them to have phones. But how do you do it in a way that doesn't put them at particular risk? Uh, because actually, sometimes in the best world in the world, uh, phones do seem to be an avenue for bullying, for peer pressure, and many other things as well. Yeah, look, I totally agree in that some of the pressures around that. It used to be whatever happened at school was nine to three, and now the phones mean that good or bad, and the risk here is the bad stuff, can just continue relentlessly and all night long. And um, so we have a combination of, if you like, rules and structures as well as guidance and engagement and trying to teach the kids wisdom. There are set limits when the phone comes on and off. There are limits to the amount of time they can do and when they can have apps. One of the things, Jonathan Haidt, and who's a really interesting commentator in the States and has done a lot of research on this, is really calling for something similar. But the social media apps, the, the WhatsApps, Instagram, TikToks, you shouldn't be allowed to have them until you're 16. It's currently 13, but that's often ignored. So he says, one, you should raise the age, and secondly, you should make that much more enforceable and put the pressure on them. And that helps shift the culture as well, because one of the hardest things to do is to have the only kid who doesn't have a phone or doesn't have WhatsApp or doesn't have Instagram or doesn't have TikTok um, and I should bring my daughter on to talk about that. That's the challenge. So you're trying to also create a community where other folks and a cultural shift where it doesn't happen, which does take parents and take schools and takes probably some level of legislation um, to say to the social media providers, we're going to hold you more accountable that an under 16 year old shouldn't have that particular app. And then, you know, I think it is a real chance. One of the things that somebody just talked to me about the other day was the micro dosing that this does. So the dark stuff that you were talking about, Nicola, Often if that's put in a movie or in a longer form, people can't cope with it. It's so overwhelmingly dark. You're like, oh, I recognize that as bad. But you get a little 10 second clip on a short or on a Snapchat or on something that's really, 
and you keep seeing these little short hits and that microdosing we can cope with, but we get desensitized. So it's almost inoculates us against then the bigger thing. And I think that's one of the things around some of the darker and more violent content that's going on um, for young people. So I think it is a really huge issue and we're going to have a multi-strand approach. I mean, we obviously were engaged in some of the legislation um, that came through recently around this, the name of which I now forget. So one of the two of you is going to have to jump in and remind me. This would be the Online Safety Act. Yes, that's the thing <laughs> I was going for. But these are relatively modest kind of changes versus the sort of thing that Jonathan Haidt's talking about and that Brianna's mum's talking about. I think the phones is too simple, but some of the social media apps putting age uh, limits on those, I'm much more sympathetic to and saying, and in essence, essentially that's what our kids have. They don't have access to those kind of apps at this stage of life. So a 14 year old doesn't have Instagram or TikTok, doesn't have a social media platform. She has WhatsApp and she can communicate with her friends and communicate with us. And she does have a smartphone. Other people think that's too liberal and others think we're ridiculously conservative. And that's on the one at primary school doesn't have a smartphone, but we'll get it when she goes to secondary school this September. That's our lines in the sand. And what we're trying to do is, I say, build a community of others and saying, this is what we do. Would you like to join us in holding this kind of line? Even that's a relatively low bar, I would say. And then we're trying to teach them. So I watched The Social Dilemma with my older child. And, you know, we talked about the influence and the impact this has. I said, this system beats me. It's going to beat you. It beats all of us. There's literally millions of dollars stacked against you right now to get you to be seduced by this device. And it is fascinating watching how much that happens. Um, online safety bills, anything, Danny or Nicola, that we, you know, anything particular in that that was of interest or worth noting as we wrap up? Well, I think the Online Safety Act, as it's now passed, does introduce some measures that should help in terms of access to particularly pornographic content online. But... I think particularly with thinking about this case, there is a need for measures and probably legislation that addresses social media and access, partly because we don't, you talk about the peer pressure among pupils and young people, but also actually, if something's taken out of a parent's hand, there is a sense that children can't blame their parents for being responsible for something. But I also think parents are responsible. So we want to I think we, what we need is something from a governmental policy level, but also a greater emphasis on how parents can take responsibility and how parents can be equipped to do that in their household, in their community context. Yeah, I think that's probably a key bit of this is the education of both parent and children, because right now we've got parents that didn't grow up with phones, with the level of technology that we have. So they maybe don't understand how much their child can access so quickly uh, at the tap of a button. So we need to educate parents on, do you know what is available for your child to see online? And then we need to educate children in the way that you were talking about, Peter, to understand what the harms are, that it's not just parents and the government and policymakers uh, being mean and putting in restrictions for the sake of being strict it's for their safety and um i think those two bits are key to this that doesn't mean there's a there shouldn't be any level of banning of apps or banning of certain things within apps for under 16s i think that's really important too but education is such a key part of this eh? and i'd like to see more of that within schools and things totally agree Look, we are in, uh, on Sunday past, I was doing the, the God story and, and kind of drawing it out. And one of the parts that really intrigues me is the story of uh, Babel in Genesis 11. And 
we're in like a Babel moment, as our colleague David Smith always says this to me, and, and we have more and more communication than ever before. We have these devices in our hands, can communicate all the time, but less and less meaning. We have more and more knowledge, but we have less and less wisdom. And I think if there is a theme today, and apologies, that's on me if there isn't, but probably it is around wisdom. Mm -hmm. How do we pray for our king in this moment with the cancer scare that he has with what's going on in the family? How do we pray for wisdom for those who are dealing often in the front line with asylum seekers and those seeking refugee status? And churches very often are on the front line of that, but are being faced with awkward conversations of offering help and support, but then being asked to give witness to the credibility and the authenticity of a conversion experience. Um, how, how do we do that with any kind of wisdom in this moment? And then the phones takes us to this wider cultural conversation. We are in a very confused and a very contested moment. And these phones give an incredible amount of information and demand attention in ways in which none of us can cope with what's stacked against us. So what does it look like to be countercultural? Because the biggest thing I get pushed back from parents is, yeah, but that's not realistic. We can't do that. Or how could I possibly? I'm like, we are ultimately the parent. We're the adult in these conversations. So particularly with young people. And then the challenge is, what are we modeling when the kids say, hold on, you just banned me from my phone. What are you doing? And we get the pushback because we are all seduced by these devices that are designed to take our attention away. And so I love that the biblical text gives us little models of fasting, of stepping away from not just food, but it could be social media, of Sabbath and rest from our phones and our devices, and little ways of helping us navigate wisely the world that we face ourselves in. That's been it for this episode of Cross Section. My thanks to Nicola and Danny, and for Zana, who's behind the scenes, running all the notes, telling us what we should say and helping us. And we'll make a guest appearance, no doubt, sometime soon. Hope you have a wonderful week and be blessed. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.